Before we start the final word today, let us quickly tell you about Future Talent Sports Cards. They make cards with you on them, not with Gary Ablett on them, not with Gary Ayres on them, not with Gary Hocking on them, not with any other Gary on them, unless your name is Gary or your friend's name is Gary and you want to be on the card. You can be on it uh, with your stats, the bio, the great achievements, uh, the time your mate hit a six off the last ball, the time uh, they did not hit a six off the last ball. Whatever has happened that has been great or terrible in your sporting careers, along with whatever photo you choose to grace the card, they can make that card. They can make cards for everybody on your team. There are sports teams presentation nights coming up in March or so. Uh, You might want to do one for the whole team, the whole squad, everybody who cut up the oranges and so on and so forth. You can go to futuretalent.com com.au and you can check out their work there or you can contact them and ask them for a sample they did cards for us adam for the final word uh, with you and i on them and you can you can get one or two of those in the mail it it reminded me of a conversation i was having with heath from future talent the other week uh, about what you can do to the cards and we were saying that what we missed with ours was we missed nicknames so the garys of course you would have had gary buddha hocking or gary god ablett or Gary, good driver in heavy traffic airs. You can put in <laughs> talking marks around the names. And, and why wouldn't you, as you say, Jeff? We're not quite at presentation night season, but it's, it's nearing. So it's the right time to turn your attention to it. As they always say uh, to us when we're having conversations with them, trophies are one thing, but they just gather dust. You know, your, your participation awards aren't something that distinguish themselves, but a, a footy card, which come for a comparable price. Uh, we say footy card, we mean sports card, but we just say footy card because we're used to saying it as two kids that grew up in Melbourne when footy cards were all the rage. Did you used to flick them uh, against your mates at school to win them against each other in, in primary school, Jeff? Like, for example, I would flick um, my Jason Dunstall card for your Gary Ablett card and the closest to the wall would win both cards? Nobody was quite that fast and loose. So definitely definitely <laughs> with marbles. But, you know, that's, that's how we get into the gambling mindset. <laughs> Well, we had marble season at my school, and then we had footy card season that immediately followed, and it was a prescribed window of the year. If I recall correctly, there was a month for marble season and a month for footy card season, and uh, never the twain should meet. And you could you could yeah. flick as, as often. There was two different versions of the footy card competition. One was, as I mentioned, flicking up to a wall, and, and the card that hit the wall and landed closest to it, you'd win. And the other one was how far you could flick. So for those that loved collecting the set, I'm thinking sort of circa 93, 90, it was, it was a big thing at school and certainly a big thing at my footy club, which is, as, as it happens, where Heath and I first met was playing footy together as, as seven-year-olds. And then we, even younger than that, we met when we were four-year-olds at the library. Then we started going to kick together. All the Hawthorne games, we, were, we went from goal to goal watching Jason Dunstall kick his 17 against Richmond in 1992. So um, Heath knows footy. He was a fantastic player himself. and He knows what a footy card is all about. So it, it reinforces why these are a great company to align yourself with. Um, they've been huge supporters of the final word. The final word set, um, which starts with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins, is going to continue for all of the guests on our show. There's going to have a card subject to them agreeing to this, released with their image on it <laughs> next year. So you can get yourself a Jared Waitley or an Isha Guha or a... Or a uh, we've got Steve Kinane on the show today. Get yourself a Steve Kinane. Who else have we had? A David Warner and Ian Chappell. Um, provided some of them release their image rights, probably yeah, not all of them will. But probably not might. David Warner's going to do that. <laughs> Dad Liebke said we can have his face for it. So, so um, free, wow. So it, it, look, it's, it's all part of it. But most importantly, jump on to futuretalent.com.au. If you want a sample of Jeff and my card, you can get that now for free. Uh, put your order in, 15% off for being listeners to the final word. So you put into the little 
offer code when you're at checkout. Final word cricket or the final word, both work. 15% off. They've been going for 10 years. They've got a five-star rating on Google and on Facebook. They've done over 200,000 individual unique cards around Victoria and Australia and indeed around the world. We've had some orders coming into Heath from listeners in the UK who've heard uh, our, our reads over the last few weeks. So if this is you in the lead-up to cricket season or the end of football season, if you're in the UK or the lead-up to presentation nights, if you're at a local cricket club, this is now the time to act. Forget about participation award trophies. They're rubbish. They end up in the bin. Get yourself a footy card. Futuretalent.com.au I had to go about it, write it out and find it myself and there's some stories I can tell you I had to fail had to fall just for what I did This is the final word. Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon with you at the end of the first test match between Australia and New Zealand. It was a comfortable victory for the home side, which increased their streak this summer. Australia are yet to lose an international, the men's side, in 2019-20. It was a lively surface at the Perth Stadium. We're going to talk all about that today. Of course, we've got Nerd Pledge. We've got all the things you know about our show. We'll come to that in a bit. We're going to talk about the WBBL final. We're going to talk about the fixtures going on around the world. And we're also going to have Steve Kinane on the show, Jeff, who is a, a senior journalist, investigative reporter at the ABC, who's been doing some really important work, which is aligned to a, a, a conversation we've been having on the show for quite a long time now. Yeah, purely by coincidence, uh, Steve Kinane has been investigating one of the major sports betting companies we've been talking about, that company and their relationship with Cricket Australia. So we'll be finding out um, what he learned for that report that he's released through the ABC's 7.30 report on the TV and background briefing on radio. Radio National, so that'll come up a bit later in the show. Uh, we've got Nerd Pledge, as you say, and uh, there are some Australia A games happening as well. There's been a whole yep. lot going on, so we'll try to race through all of that in a timely fashion. We should do the test match first, I suppose. We should. We should. When we started the final word way back when, Jeff, it, the idea of it was to do it the day after a test match finished and to pick the eyes out of the five days and all cricket action. We still kind of like to maintain that, that flavour. So mm. the cricket itself will start there. Uh, I mentioned that Australia continue their it's undefeated streak just wondering that if you picked the eyes out of five days, then it would be five days. <laughs> uh, yes, it would. Well, they're, they're the gags you can also rely on if you're listening to the final word for the first time. That's Jeff Lemon 101. So we, we saw Australia win. It, it was an easy win in the end, uh, set up by their yeah, it shouldn't patient have been. batting. It shouldn't have been. Yeah, you I, have three bowlers. You shouldn't win a test match easily. <laughs> no, you shouldn't win it in four days, really, uh, and you shouldn't win it as comfortably as they did. But I suppose New Zealand also had three bowlers at their disposal, although they have a, an all-rounder in, in Colin de Granholm and they utilised their part-time spinner pretty well too. But from an Australian perspective, they, they set it up by their willingness to bat time in hot conditions. It, it wasn't a feature of this Australian side. Even 12 months ago, I know that 18-19 is a bit of an outlier in, in terms of the, the Smith and Warner absence, but they, they went at roughly 80 runs a session across four sessions to build the base, which meant that if they were able to take those early wickets under lights, well, they ended up batting for five sessions, sorry, uh, and, and they gave themselves to, to start with the pink ball. It's not as much time played in the pitch black, if you like, of night when you're in Perth because they started the day-night fixture at one in the afternoon, but still they, they absolutely made it work on that second evening. And from there, there was really only ever going to be one winner. There was no way Australia were going to lose after taking a glut of wickets on the second night. Yeah, and I don't want to 
to be smug, but, you know, I told you so. I told everybody. I said, New Zealand are going to joke at the start. And they did. Like, probably even by the second day of the test match, they started to drag themselves into it. But they let it go on that first day. They were they were shoddy in the first hour. They let the openers get away. Australia were going along at four and over through, you know, the first hour or so of play, and, and suddenly they were away. They took four wickets on the first day, New Zealand. I mean, obviously, it's tough to lose the toss and, and be asked to bowl in 40-degree conditions, but it, it was going to be like that throughout the whole test match. Lockie Ferguson was erratic, which you can understand in a test debutante, but it, it meant that it, they couldn't apply any pressure. And then even when they did start bowling a bit better later in the day, catches went down, missed fields, there was a missed run out. So there were a range of ways in which New Zealand didn't help themselves. And then the way they batted, in that sixth session of the match. Yeah, it's hard in the evening coming out to face Stark, but look, Hazelwood went down injured. New Zealand hadn't prepared for this. They hadn't played pink ball warm-ups. They hadn't um, acclimatised. They'd come straight off playing test matches against England at home, and they were pretty much asking to be knocked over in quick time, and they were. Yeah, I I felt for them um, in not having that lead-up. They really should have had a warm-up game. I know that they played test cricket in the previous fortnight, but... As Kane Williamson said, uh, playing in Hamilton's one thing on a dead pitch, playing at Perth Stadium, which is anything but that. And we'll come to how exciting, I suppose, the surface was. But pink ball under lights, all the conditions were there for it to be difficult. I have a slightly different take on, on the way that they kept it together in the field. It was in excess of 40 degrees on every day of the match, but which in itself is always a challenge for, for a bowling side. But they never really dropped their bundle with the exception of that first hour. Yes, they went around the park a bit there when, when Warner was putting the foot down initially, but they did drag it back. Um, they did take consistent enough wickets uh, I thought that Williamson uh, they, they stayed the course with Smith which was most impressive the fact that they got him caught in the leg side trap uh, was was really important I think to I, I guess uh, have some sort of exposure for Smith at the start of the series we've seen with Smith in the past if he if he makes 100 at the first time of asking as he often does that's it you're kind of lost you, your bowlers have, start second guessing themselves and, and mm. before you know it plan A plan B plan C plan Z but this time they, they kept it well outside the off stump they made him wait. I think he occupied the crease for 85 or 90 balls before he made it to 20. And not long after that, uh, Wagner had him uh, caught around the corner. So that's the, the second time in, you know, in, in the space of a few test matches. Uh, ben Stokes, uh, of course, uh, was successful in that as well uh, at the Oval in the second inning. So there's, there's something for them to work with there. And they never went for more than 80 runs in a session, which kind of shows that, yeah, Australia were patient, but New Zealand didn't give them the chance to completely get off the hook. So after batting for that length of time, Australia, you know, when they played Pakistan were, were well above, well, I think they made 580 in five sessions in Brisbane and 589 in five sessions at Adelaide, whereas here they, they made, well, it was in excess of 400, but not Just anymore, over, 400, yeah, 417. So... I thought that was a really good contest and I was looking forward to seeing New Zealand. But as you say, I mean, Hazelwood, it, it, it might go down as one of the um, one of the uh, strangest analysis. As you, well, it already is really. But if he doesn't play again in the series, he'll have you know, 1.2 overs, uh, one for none. An absolute screamer as well, that ball that went through <laughs> the gate of Reval um, from over the wicket. It was the stuff you dream of as a fast bowler. But yeah, a couple of balls later into his second over, he went down and, and didn't come back again. And with that hamstring strain, it, it's certain he'll be out of Melbourne. Uh, feels as though he'll be out for at least a little while after that as well. Yeah, I wonder, um, the, the thing that I was amused by was that 
he batted in the first innings and didn't face a ball, didn't bat in the second innings. So his entire contribution for the match was eight deliveries and one of them included one of the best balls you'll ever see just to absolutely <laughs> smash over middle stump. So I wonder how many players have had as much influence in the space of an eight delivery match because that really set the tone. I mean, Latham had got out in the first over, but it was Jeet Raval's wicket that really sent the shivers through. Suddenly New Zealand were going, oh, mm. Jesus, we could be absolutely result here. They only faced 50 it was a crazy night, though, wasn't it? I think yeah. you watched that. I mean, that, that last session with Ross Taylor counter-attacking, pulling everything. I mean, the, the, the bouncer barrage he had to get through. Matthew Wade bowling with a ball that was eight overs old or something like that. Yeah, Yeah, And beating Taylor twice with two very tidy outswingers at the start of his first and, and second over. But, I mean, on both the second and third night, and even the first night, really, but especially the second night and the third night, that was exhilarating test cricket. Yeah, I've been waiting for Matthew Wade. To, I wanted him to be the all-rounder in the World Cup team, you know, just just come <laughs> on and really surprise a team and bowl 10 overs. So to see him steaming in with basically the new ball was just just a wonderful thing to see. Cricket cricket is a, is a hell of a game sometimes. Mm. Ross Taylor, particularly the way he went after Nathan Lyon that night and really got on top of him, clobbered him through the covers a fair bit, got to 66 mm. quickly that evening. And then the next day, Nathan Lyon had him in knots, was, was you know, ripping the ball through the gate, um, zooming it past the outside edge and, and eventually got Taylor for 80, caught at slip, just sort of pushing at a ball that didn't turn. They, they raced through New Zealand in 55 overs, the Australians. And so even though they only had three frontline bowlers, there was no ability to put pressure on them to make those bowlers have to come back for extra spells and to wear them out. And then even though, you know, New Zealand were able to get on a similar run in the evening session when they were bowling, it just, it was too late for it to have an effect. It was good to watch. All the Australians were getting out to the short ball, though. This this, this spell of, of short bowling from Tim Southey, who suddenly started cranking the pace up and had Joe Burns caught in the gully off a screamer. And then Neil Wagner just kept doing what Wagner did, which was come in and attack the body. And Australia kept playing crossbat shots and kept getting out. Yeah, it was, I mean, you would rarely see a side that far behind in a test match looking that far on top on the third evening. I mean, Australia were, I mean, their lead at one stage on on night three, there was talk of, well, maybe they'll declare and and pop New Zealand in again. I mean, I'm sure if Shane Warne was commentating, he would have advised Australia to have declared their second innings close at naught for naught and and start bowling right away. Um, But uh, the, you know, the usual nonsense around declaration, premature declaration was doing the rounds on on social media. We've become conditioned to that. It's okay to wait a little while to declare, especially when it's 40 degrees, especially when you want to give your bowlers a rest, especially when you've had a bowler go down and it's a five-day match. There was no rain forecast. You can take your time. There is no rush. And in, <laughs> indeed, uh, it, that, yes, they did lose nine wickets on the way to 216, I think it was, the second time around. But that, that session uh, where Burns and Labuschagne were doing it on the bit, we didn't mention that Marnus Labuschagne made his way to his third test century on the bounce in the first inning. So I was really egging him on to get to a fourth because that would have put him into mm. rarefied air. Only Jack Fingledon has done that uh, for Australia in test cricket. Of course, Everton Weeks made five in a row, but Fingleton holds that Australian record. And it felt as though Labuschagne was going to go you know, centuries one through four in four innings until he got caught at mid-wicket. He was fortunate not to be caught there um, at the start of his innings, I, I should add. He he, uh, he was dropped uh, when I think DeGranholm was running back with yeah. the flight. But in any case, so once Labuschagne was out, Burns followed shortly thereafter. And then there was a, a collapse. I think it was five for 29. Wagner and Southey, as, as Ian Smith, was uh, making, the, uh, making the point on... Um, 
on the commentary. They're not that quick. I mean, they're, they're a decent 10 to 15 kilometres slower than, than Stark and Cummins and Hazelwood. But it must, it's something about, I don't know, is it Wagner's trajectory that, and consistency mm. and the angles and his enthusiasm? And maybe it's that you know it's coming. Whatever it is, at, at 130 clicks, he looks as dangerous as anyone bowling short pitched in, in test cricket. And, uh, and it was a real working over. And it was, again, bloody exciting stuff, even though the, the scoreboard suggested Australia were, were miles ahead. A lead, yeah, by that point, near enough to 400, but probably ahead of 400, really, by that point of the evening. Um, but it didn't diminish the, the contest at all. Yeah, I can't remember which of the Australians it was being interviewed coming off. Might have been Manus, who was saying that it's it can sound well and good to have that plan of just coming in and bumping batsmen, but if you're not accurate enough, you'll go around the park because mm. it's easy to score off if it's not in the right spot. Wagner's able to do that. Maybe it helps that he's shorter and so, you know, that, that trajectory's not as steep, it skids on, but he, he makes batsmen uncomfortable and maybe because he is that bit slower than a really fast bowler, they feel like they can take him on and so they are willing to play those shots. So they were six for not a whole lot um, at the end of that third evening. And then my favourite passage of the test match was Australia batting on on the fourth day. Now, I think what they wanted to do was, you know, have be two wickets down and, and bat all the way through the first two sessions and then put New Zealand back mm. in in the evening session. Didn't work out that way. It was Cummins opening the day with Matthew Wade. Matthew Wade decides, I'm not going to play any shots. Everyone else got out to the short ball, so I'm just not going to hit the short ball. I'm going to <laughs> leave it and I'm going to let it hit my body, right? And as a gesture in support of this, he put on half an arm guard, not a full arm guard, but just one about maybe six inches in length that covered the bottom half of his forearm, as if to say, well, you know, I, I'll have some protection, but not too much. I don't want to see... They're in fashion. I don't want they're to see in, they're in fashion, these, these, these mini arm guards. Yeah, yeah I've, I've, I've seen them bobbing up a little bit uh, over the last six months or so. I don't know why, because, yeah, as you point out, there, there's not a lot of arm covered by it, but I have seen quite a few players at test level electing to go with the, the, the small arm guard for whatever reason. But, yeah, like... It was gutsy batting. Say what you will for the strategy of just letting the ball hit you over and over again. He stayed the course. I mentioned Williamson staying the course with the way that they bowled to Smith. There was no way that Wade was going to give it up to, to Wagner. And look, there was a, a, a lot of back and forth between the two of them, but it felt as though it was from a position of mutual respect. Like Wagner kind of uh, respected what Wade was doing and Wade kind of was up for what Wagner was doing, which, yeah. you know, you love that. We, we see a lot of sort of uh, relatively boring third innings batting. I mean, in fact, most third innings batting when you're racking up declaration runs at some of the most turgid test cricket there is, but this made it something completely different. There was one particularly nice little moment of Wagner Bell's a bouncer. This, this clip was going around online. Wade looks him in the eye and says, keep him coming, big boy. And, and Wagner, <laughs> Wagner turns around to walk back. And once he turns around, he then pisses himself laughing. Like he doesn't want to show Wade that he thinks it's funny, but he turns around and just breaks into this beam smile. It, it, it was a nice moment. A, a word for Neil Wagner, who bowled 60 overs at him in 40 degree heat, most of it mm. short. Just ridiculous. Tim Southey bowled 50. New Zealand did have the benefit of de Grandhomme, who bowled 39 overs himself in the match. He was coming back from injury. His average per test match is 24 overs. He bowled 39 here. Mm. So, they did a power of work. Um, but for Australia, Mitchell Stark, who we haven't mentioned yet, was was outstanding. I think it's the best I've seen him bowl in a test match for... I'm, I'm struggling to remember the last time because... No, 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 you, you don't need a caveat. I don't think you need a caveat. I think it's the best Mitchell Stark's bowl for Australia. In a I, I think that, like, the consistency across spells, Payne used him really well. He, he left him... 
he gave him a two-hour break. It would have been two hours 20 when you include the, the interval between using him on day four, which I think said everything. It, it, it's not just about repeat spells with Stark. It's about getting him on at the right time. And I think he bowls with so much confidence when he's being deployed at those moments. Um, the result was resolved as by, by the final day. But on that fourth afternoon, Matthew Wade said himself, or fourth evening, I should say, at the drinks break, that we're not going to have enough time to bowl him out here. This is going to go to a fifth day. And then Stark comes on, they take four wickets in four overs. He cleans them up. And that does have benefits too. Like, remember, having played with three bowlers and two fast bowlers, that extra mm. day off is absolute gold. And, and Stark got them that. Cummins bowled magnificently as well, but was the less lucky of the two across the test match, really. He could have been the one that, that cleaned up, but it was Stark. And to think this is the same bowler that we saw last summer, Jeff, um, when he was really struggling for consistency. Um, and even... I know he made a, a really important contribution at Manchester in the middle order uh, in England's second innings, I think it was. But you go back to that, that first spell that Stark bowled at Manchester, it wasn't unreasonable to think that this guy could be finished as a test bowler. He just seemed to lose the, the, the thing that he had. But he's bounced back so well against Pakistan. And yeah, I can't think of a time when he's been bowling better in test cricket than he has in the last couple of weeks. Yeah, the, th- the thing that I noticed with Stark in this test match was he bowled down the leg side a fair bit as he's wont to do but generally only when he was going for the short ball and he'd sometimes drag it but he didn't bowl wide outside the off stump for the right hander and that's something that you know when he's been bowling badly he'll slant the ball a long way across the right hander and they don't have to play there were very few of those deliveries that I noticed Um, Mm. he got an in-between length much better it wasn't Yorker bouncer there was he was hitting the length ball more often he was bowling in the channel more often the the analysis data bears that out as well his pace is down just a little bit but he's still averaging 143 you know maybe that's helped him with the control and he's he's reworked his um his run up and and delivery a little bit which and whatever he's done it's working because the the tightness the accuracy seemed so much more there and often his short ball has been the least effective out of the the three main Australian bowlers because it's not accurate whereas in this match it was the ball that he got Colin de Grandom out with you know de Grandom might not have gloved it but it was it was good enough for him to glove it. That really mm. tight line in at the body, giving the batsman nowhere to go, that's the kind of thing Stark was able to do. So, yeah, I was super impressed with his game and and glad to see him, you know, back to his best, basically. Yeah, I mean, and I don't subscribe to the, the view that, that does the rounds that, oh, well, he, he was always fine and it was... It was uh Ridiculous that he didn't play five tests in England, and and you know you you see some of the the New South Wales um, contingent further and forward advance this view that oh well you know this just proves that they were wrongheaded to ever pick Peter Siddle and and rotate it around through the Ashes series. I, I don't sign up to that. There were deficiencies. He's improved. He's changed. I mean, Damien Fleming identified it as soon as he bowled his first ball at the Gabba. His load ups altered. He's been working with Andre Adams at New South Wales and. He's much better for those amendments that he's made, and good on him for it. I mean, the had he just ploughed on doing what he was doing and been pig-headed about it, then maybe he wouldn't have improved the way that he has. But it does make Australia such a more formidable attack when you've got a bloke who's as tall as he is, as quick as he is, and can move the ball the way that he can, not least the pink ball. And, and just a word before we move on, Jeff, for Nathan Lyon, who 
also had his troubles in 2019 under the radar a little bit, I think. I, I feel as though we didn't spend a lot of time talking about um, line being a little bit off, but um, statistically it, it bears that out. I think at one stage at Adelaide, um, before he went on to take five wickets there, his average had gone north of 40 in the calendar year, which is you know, certainly a, a significant increase than, than what it had been in, in the last couple of years before that. But um, after taking his first five-wicket haul in test against Pakistan, he picked up four against New Zealand in the second innings and, and looked a real threat, um, really in both innings, but the second innings when it was his job to sort of make life difficult and hold up an end, he, he performed that well and, and it was an even more important role because Hazelwood wasn't there, so Lyon moved to Melbourne, hopefully back to not just the, the, close to the best of his bowling, but also confident, and we know with Lyon how crucial it is that he has his confidence up. Lyon had to bowl for that whole second innings, he couldn't afford to be hit out of the attack because, you know, he had to do for 50% of the bowling and and he mm. did that bar a couple of overs where um, Head was bowling a little bit in, in tandem with Manus so he, he came back from that first innings in Adelaide where he had a lot of catches dropped and that's something that has bothered him at times in the past but yeah six yep. for in the second innings there and he's on 374 wickets now so he's levelled up with Malcolm Marshall which is not a bad character to draw level with in the wicket taking pledge their joint 18th all time. Who's ahead of him now? So he's got so he's got Marshall three seven four. Is Waka Yunus not? He's just gone past Waka. Just gone past Waka. Waka was three seven two, I think. So and, and, and who's immediately after three seven four? Who's next uh, on the hit list? Both them, wouldn't it be three eight three? I'm, I'm, I don't have it in front of me at the moment, but I think it's both them 383. And then there's another 390s, and before you start hitting the 400s, then it's Pollock and Teeny, that sort of. Um, That's going to be very exciting. Once we get to that stage when he hits 400, and like he probably will by the time we're in Bangladesh or thereabouts, it's going to be. That's going to be an exciting, I guess, last chapter of Lyon's career, seeing where mm. he finishes up on the on the wicket tally list. Well, five spinners ahead of him, Adam. So that's Harbhajan, 417, Herath, 433 or 434, 434, Rangan Herath, I think. And then it's the three at the top being Kumble, Warren, Morelli. So, you know, within a year, within 18 months, maybe he could be behind only those three. Did I detect yesterday them calling him Goldberg on the coverage. Maybe I... I thought they were I, calling I Wade Goldberg. I was at Wade. I was thinking if it were Lyon, that would be appropriate because of the bald head. But just thinking to myself, I can imagine, you know, Nathan like going like Goldberg used to do, you're next. Kind of looking up and down the chart and identifying who he's going to pluck off one by one before he, as we said back in 2015, Jeff, before he eventually overtakes Shane Warne. We did call it first. Hang on. Is, <laughs> is Goldberg the goalie from the Mighty Ducks? Is, is that what we're... I'm thinking about the what, the wrestler from the oh. um, the mid '90s. He right. had the um, he had the finishing move, which was the um, it was like a spear tackle. I wish okay. I remember what it was called now. But he, I remember he, he fought Diamond Dallas Page in a, a pay per view in you know late '90s when wow. wrestling was all the rage, and it, it was an extremely exciting part of my youth. But obviously not sufficiently big enough that I remember what his finishing move was. But yes, Nathan Lyon probably wasn't Goldberg, but I'm, I'm happy to go with it. I was thinking it's it's the, the goalkeeper from the Mighty Ducks who's, um, you know, the chunky kid who's terrible Goldberg. at it. And they have to tie him into the goal frame. Um, <laughs> so, so then I was assuming it was something to do with whoever was at short leg, you know, wearing all the padding and the helmet and stuff, who I think was Matthew <laughs> Wade at that point. So I just thought, you know, that was where my mind went with the Goldberg reference. But you never yeah, know. Yeah. Um, they, we'll, we'll get to have all the arguments about Stark and Siddle and whatnot again because they're going to the MCG. Uh, by the time this show is out, the squad will have been announced. Justin Langer was 
implying that Siddle would be the player brought into the squad. They've also got Pattinson and Nisa in the squad, so it's a matter of who they would pick there. You know, obviously you would think it sort of could and should be James Pattinson because he's the scary fast bowler. But if they want a more like-for-like replacement with Hazelwood, someone who can be a, a steadier, more accurate type, then Siddle's been taking his wickets an average of 15 at the MCG this season in the Shield. Yeah, it's it's not an unreasonable uh, case. Although if they did pick Peter Siddle ahead of Michael Nisa, I think that would be cruel. Only because, and this is no reflection on Siddle, who I fucking love, it's only because Nisa has done everything right since, I guess, entering national consideration, mm. even down to the way that he fielded when he was on for a, as a sub for Hazelwood throughout this test in the heat. He made a point of that, didn't he? He saved about three boundaries where he put in a full 80-metre sprint and dived and tapped it back when it was completely pointless. New Zealand were cooked, but he was just, he was sure. just making a statement to say, hey... Don't you forget about me, don't you? <laughs> no, no, no. no well, I mean, and, and, and we're not going to I'm not going to let them forget about Nisa. Uh, Brett Sanderason and I enjoy a lot of Twitter back and forth about why Nisa must play. And we'll continue to mount the case, having watched him a lot in the nets uh, over the last six months. He, he's quicker than you think. Mm. He lands it in a shoebox and he gets all the good players, namely Stephen Smith, um, let's just say. But basically, it's Smith I'm talking about here. He works him over all the time in the nets. And if he's... Good enough for, for to do that, then, then I see no reason why he, he can't be a serious threat on Boxing Day. Although in saying that, if they did pick Peter Siddle for one last frolic at the MCG, uh, no complaints. But I, and Langer sort of hinted too that they might consider playing four quicks and a spinner. So uh, that goes back to what we were talking about before the Ashes when we were speculating they could play Stark, Hazelwood, Cummins and Pattinson mm. in the same 11 alongside Nathan Lyon. Unlikely, but... Could. I suppose we'll know a lot more tomorrow when they name the squad. But that would have to be Nisa or Pattinson, wouldn't it, for the strength of their batting, you know, if you wanted to have a to make a sort of fake seven out of one of those two rather than Siddle. Yeah, yeah, I suppose that yeah, it, none of it's perfect, is, is it? But, um, but uh, yeah. Uh, look, I, I get why they, they would be drawn to the idea of having Siddle in the squad just as backup as well because they've done that. Since Langer became coach, he's liked having Siddle in the squad as a safe pair of hands. And judging by a radio interview that, that Siddle was doing with Adam White this morning on RSN, um, Langer comes to Siddle for advice like more generally about the, the way it's going. So, yeah, mm. he, he, he might perform a bit of a, a squad member slash kind of playing assistant coach mentor around the rooms um, bit of a jack of all trades and why wouldn't you want Peter Siddle around the rooms uh, um, and a reminder of course that that, um, that next November there will indeed be Peter Siddle Day to reflect the mm. 10 years since his birthday hat trick if you want to learn more about that you know, scroll back a couple of episodes and you can hear all about our, our provisional plans National Peter Siddle Day how filthy are you going to be Adam when Peter Siddle plays in the Boxing Day test and takes a hat trick <laughs> Oh, man. This is becoming... I mean, I'm enjoying it, don't get me wrong, but there's now been two articles in the Sydney Morning Herald about it, my lack of seeing a, um, a hat-trick. Um, for those who haven't followed this nonsense I've been going on about on Twitter for the last couple of years, I've seen 116 test matches and I've never witnessed a hat-trick and, and a lot of people have picked up on this. So whenever Stark's on a hat-trick, which has happened now three times in the last three tests, my notifications light up like a Christmas tree. And, and Lion was on one as well. On a, he was, yeah. And Across two the, innings. Uh, 
a more the more discerning hat trick that yeah. was in that um, it happened over yeah two innings and two days a la Merv Hughes in in 1988. But um, yes, the the only difference there, of course, would have been that Merv's happened over three overs as well. Of course, the, the most unique of the the, the hat tricks taken in Test cricket. Alas, it will happen. I'm convinced that someone will take a hat trick in this series when I'm not there, um, and I'm okay with that. In fact, I'm I'm encouraging it. I would have loved nothing more than Mitchell Stark to have completed the job this week and really underlined how unlucky I've been with this over the years, missing about five of them within a day. The Melbourne Cricket Ground will be sweating bullets in the lead up to the Test match, um, having had a Sheffield Shield match called off for a poor wicket. Uh, it seems like the story is that they just juiced the shit out of it to see what would happen, like just <laughs> because the MCG pitch like has, been, has been so dead for so for so many years, they just watered and watered this one for the Shield and and just like just pumped it full of like creatine powder or something and just really bulked it yeah. up. It was like the you know the the full gallon of milk a day diet, um, <laughs> and, and it went full stoyness and and started launching balls at at Sean Marsh's head, so. A fair bit of, of chat and controversy around that. Victoria and Western Australia have shared the points, which has drawn some um, uh, acerbic comment from some people and and so on. There's a lot, isn't there? Yeah, um, in terms of juicing it up, it's like they, they skipped leg day. They did arm day after arm day after arm day. They got huge. I'm required to register these hands with the FBI as lethal weapons. <laughs> Peter Siddle was the man who had to register his hands uh, with the FBI that day. He was bouncing everyone. Look, uh, one, I feel for Matt Page. He's obviously the curator at the MCG. He's uh, working under in very tough circumstances, having come over from the Wacker a couple of seasons ago. Uh, an enormous amount of scrutiny on the, on the job that he does, given the performance of the wicket in seventeen eighteen, and it wasn't much better, frankly, last year when India were here. It was better, but only marginally better, and, and the technology he's been working with, which Dan Bredig has, has written about a couple of times now. So if you want to learn more about the MCG and and why they find it harder with their drop-ins to provide wickets that are suitable for test cricket compared to other venues. You can you can read about it on Crick Info. So there's that. So I don't think that the page should be sort of hung, drawn and quartered for it. He was doing his best to try and create something. On the other hand, I don't think it's, it should be written off as a, a non-story either. I, I saw um, one of the Cricket Australia corporate affairs officers um, on the sounding out on Twitter implying that it wasn't a big deal because... Only one game had been called off and the other two games that round hadn't been called off or, or something like that. <laughs> it's a big deal when a Sheffield Shield game is called off. This does not happen. Games of cricket, which are meant to go four days and are jettisoned in the, in the second session of the first day, is a, is a big talking point and mm. it is a big concern. And if the pitch at the MCG isn't up to scratch... Uh, on Boxing Day this year, it will it will turn the pressure up yet further. Now I know that the reading on the pitch in seventeen eighteen doesn't count uh, for the ICC anymore. The ICC had an amnesty on pitch ratings in twenty eighteen, so the MCG would need two poor ratings from here. So uh, you read some misinformation saying they're one they're one bad wicket away from losing the test. It's, it's not quite clear cut as that, but it doesn't mean that it's not. A big deal. I mean, these cricketers missed an opportunity to play a first-class game uh, before Christmas to press their claims because the, the pitch wasn't up to scratch. You don't see that it, in the park, let alone um, in professional ranks. So, yeah, I feel for Matt Page on one hand, but on the other hand, it, it's deservedly come under a lot of scrutiny. Adam, is it nerd time? I think we're getting pretty close to it. Have it, we missed anything along the way? I'm just looking. I don't think we have. I'm just looking at this special wristwatch that I've had made, which has no numbers on it, but just at the top it says <laughs> "Nerd Pledge" 
and the, the, the big hand is ticking around. It is <laughs> Nerd Pledge, the game of nerds and pledges where people jump on our patron page and send us numbers uh, in the form of dollars and cents that correlate to cricket numbers and we have to work out what they are. We actually did this segment last week, but somehow uh, the dog ate the audio or something and it didn't work. So we're going to do it again. Just a couple, just a couple of Nerd Pledge numbers to keep the dedicated pledges interested. I think we mentioned Alison Stock on the show last week who'd sent through uh, a 300, so that was covered um, because we were talking about triple hundreds last week, but thank you Alison Stock, the inventor of the stock thank image. You. And and we had a, a really nice little moment of synchrony which also didn't work on that show because we'd that was the show after we'd been talking about Philip Hughes and, and five years since his death and we had uh, Alex T had just happened that week uh, to send through a number of 408 and 408 of course is the test cap number of Philip Hughes which was painted on the Adelaide Oval turf in 2014 when when Steve Smith saluted from there after he made his 100 and and that mm-hmm. that very moving test match um, in in the aftermath of his funeral yeah there was um, some wonderful tributes to Philip Hughes around the Adelaide test match a couple of weeks ago uh, Steve Smith's words were quite moving we were interviewing him uh, about that and just that he still thinks about it every day and we I think sometimes forget that for this generation of players not least the the handful who were on the field with him uh, the day that he passed away or the day that he was struck by that that delivery which caused that terrible trauma that it does remain with them like that that you don't just move on from that Uh, so it's kind of unbelievable that it's been five years ago but yeah absolutely 408 can only mean one thing Thank you, Alex T, for for that appropriate number coming through. Evan Beaver has sent through two zero nine two dollars and nine cents. What does two oh nine mean to you, Adam? Well, and I know that it's Bob Simpson's cap number because we did this um, this number recently for something else, and I think we identified it being the Ricky Ponting double hundred against Pakistan down in Hobart when he hadn't made a hundred for uh, quite a long time uh, and and managed to survive a, an early drop catch and just happened to be Muhammad Amia who dropped him yeah, on didn't it, yeah. On a long leg and he went on to make a big home ground double ton but the, the triple ton theme um, with Bob Simpson so of course a lot of focus on, on David Warner's magnificent performance in Adelaide I've just been writing about it for the Wisden Almanac over, over the weekend um, and just going back through all of the numbers and uh, what, a, what a feat that it was but um, looking back at Bob Simpson's uh, triple ton, uh, the, the turgid 311, no, no triple hundreds are bad, as you pointed out last week in your piece, Jeff, but still 311, uh, which he made across 742 balls in that inning. So uh, a bit of a contrast between the way that Warner went about it and the way that Bobby Simpson did in 1964. Just speaking about Muhammad Ahmed here briefly, did you see that no ball from the Bangladesh Premier League during the week? I did. Uh, I, was I it Santoki? The, the West Indies bowler who, who overstepped by pro- probably about two feet, I reckon. Was there any further um, reportage on that beyond the screenshot that went viral? I, I think there should be. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think generally when the, um, uh, when the whatever they call themselves, the integrity unit or the CSI or whatever they are um, from the ICC look into things, they, they don't like to... Um, promote the fact that they're looking into things, so they're probably keeping quiet about it. But it was also um, preceded by a wide down the leg side by about two metres a couple of balls earlier before that no ball happened. So, hmm, interesting times in the Bangladesh Premier League, okay. nonetheless. I reckon, I reckon 209 for Evan Beaver is a different 100. Uh, it, it came in Leeds 
in 2001. Leeds in 2001. So Mark Butcher makes 100 at Leeds in 2001. Yeah, he made 171. Win. But, but no one made 209 in that match, but they did in a different test match. In a different test match in 01. Okay, give me a sec just to think about this. A different test match that was played at Headingley in 2001. Can't have been any other... I think England might have played Bangladesh in that summer first. Or was it Pakistan? Pakistan, wasn't it? They played Pakistan in the immediate lead-up? It, it was an Ashes test. It was the other Ashes test. It was uh, Karen Rolton's oh, test, double hundred. Very her good, highest very good. score. I, I, I had the blinkers on there. I, I, I thought about Mark Butcher and I was immediately going down the path of men's tests, but I'm glad that um, Karen Rolton gets a run for that. Well, maybe um, it, it was record-breaking, wasn't it? Who knows if it was heading... The scorecard just says Leeds, so does that mean heading No, that's fine. Yeah, if it just says Leeds, if, if it were another ground at Leeds, it would have it in brackets. If okay. it's on... If it's on the chart I suspect you're using, then, mm. yeah, that, that would mean it's at Headingley. And, um, yeah, that was the Australian record and I think the world record at the time. doesn't hold either of those anymore, but still, uh, 209, Karen Rolton, good stuff. Yeah, Matali Raj broke it about six months later, I reckon, with 214 yep. maybe, something like that. And Elise Perry got the Australian record with 213 at North Sydney Oval in 2017. So that's going to be my vote for Evan Beavers 209. And the other one Very is a, a nerd pledge which got lost and then found its way back to us <laughs> from from friend of the show, Matt Clemo, who was helping us put the live show together in Adelaide, who came through with a number that means a lot to you, Adam. 41, well, yeah, 81. Yeah, 4181. That, that might be the cumulative attendance at the Perth Casino Stadium this week. <laughs> Um, no, I think they got a few more than 4,000. To be fair, they did get 19,000, 19,000, you know, and, and change. And then I think it was uh, nine or 10,000 on, on the final day. Whatever it was, I worked out that the Wacker had more people there every day of their previous test match there than um, than what was drawn there this week at Perth Stadium. They've got they've got work to do on that. I just thought I should get that in there because the Wacker is being redeveloped. Uh, and we heard uh, Chris Matthews on the... Um, SEM broadcast saying that Afghanistan, if they were to get that test match next year, and they're certainly not angling for it, she said she'd be brought to tears if, if Perth doesn't get an India test next year. But um, if it were to be Afghanistan, they do miss out. I'm not saying they should. That'd be played at the Wacker, and there's just been another injection of, of money announced for that from the government. So um, the Wacker might be in good shape again and, and fit for purpose in terms of hosting test cricket. And given the attendances uh, over the road at, at, at the casino, I, I see no reason why they wouldn't consider that. But anyway, 4.1.81 is Mark Ball's batting average. So that's the that's the Matt Clemo uh, generous uh, contribution. Uh, Clemo, of course, has been an amazing supporter of um, us uh, in what we do, not just in terms of the, the, the final word live show in Adelaide, but um, he's put us up every time we've come to Adelaide over the last whatever, how many years it's been, five or six years we've been doing this nonsense for a living. He, he's always been uh, a loyal and, and dependable friend in, in making sure that our week in Adelaide is as smooth as possible. So thanks so much uh, for that contribution and, and we'll make sure we get that over to our Patreon account ra- rather than sitting over at the greatest season it was Patreon account uh, where it's been uh, been debited for, for the last couple of months. So cheers, Clemo. If you want to play Nerd Pledge, you want to send us a number, see if we can work out what it is. Of course, you won't quite know or we won't know if we're right, but we'll think that we're probably right. You can go to our patron. It's patron.com slash the final word and you spell patron P-A-T-R-E-O-N. And when you do that, you can sign up to support the show with uh, a couple of bucks or whatever it is that you want to do per show or per month or however it is you would like to set that up. All of those options are there for you um, and you can sign up and, and get access to some um, subscribers only content as well, some hot quality content over there.
And a quick nod um, to, to the number 843. It's not a nerd pledge, although it might be. Uh, last week we, we uh, recorded the show just after Bob Willis passed away. Of course, he's 8 for 43, one of the most um, memorable spells in, in Ash's history. Uh, always a, a fascinating person to, to hear the insights of living over here and sort of uh, tuning into the verdict and, of course, knowing quite a bit about his playing career. Um, there were some beautiful pieces of writing uh, eulogising Bob's life, including uh, Mike Atherton, which I can recommend. Uh, which was a, a great piece. Uh, Vic Marks, uh, Vedushna Hantaraja, giving a more, I guess, modern perspective as someone who, who wouldn't have seen Bob play in the flesh. But yes, eight four three uh, to keep with the nerd pledge theme. Of course, the the, the figures from the, the Kirkstall uh, Lane end in 1981, a spell that won't be forgotten. And uh, and uh, and yes, yeah, so maybe if you want to uh, recognise Bob, that can be a number you go for. But I thought that was just the right time to, to mention that, given that we lost that recording last week. Uh, g'day, this is Will Anderson, and you're listening to The Final Word with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. This is The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon, and we're really happy to have on the show uh, a member of the ABC Investigations Unit. He was previously the Europe correspondent for the ABC, uh, a long-term veteran of the current affairs caper at the National Broadcaster at Late Line. He won a Walkley when he was the host of the Hack program in the middle of the noughties. Of course, it's none other than Steve Kinane. Welcome to The Final Word, Steve. Oh, my pleasure to be here. You've been busy. Uh, we, uh, we, we were, we've seen the, the work you've been up to in the last couple of weeks and we saw how it uh, married up with a conversation we've been having o- on the podcast for, well, over 12 months now about the uh, influence of Bet365 as a corporate sponsor of Cricket Australia. Uh, and you've been investigating uh, their practices more broadly and you, you came away with some, yeah, some fairly uh, interesting findings. Yeah, I spoke to a whistleblower called James Poppleton, who, as far as I can see, is the first person who's ever been an insider at Bet365 who's spoken out about that company. They're very secretive, private company based in Stoke-on-Trent in the UK. Uh, and he revealed a number of things. Um, he revealed a, the, the basis for their business model, model, secret algorithms, restrictions on customers, uh, banning successful punters, Uh, He alleged that they were putting delays into in-play betting that gave an unfair advantage uh, to Bet365 over the punter. Now, Bet365 denies that, but we have certainly seen screenshots of the term delay added from inside Bet365. So we were able to peel back the layers of this particular company, and they're really a pioneer in the sports betting world. I I travelled to Huddersfield in Yorkshire for my story, and I spoke to a man called Brian Chappell, and he said that they really pioneered what he called the ban or bankrupt model in sports betting, where what Bet365 was able to do in the early days of sports betting was attract people in with good odds, uh, free bets, special promotional offers, and then they would filter out the successful punters. So their whole customer base were losers. So if we could draw a cricket analogy, it would be as if uh, Australia or India or England only insisted on playing associate nations like, say, Cyprus and the Bahamas, but would not play the the decent uh, teams. So that's their business model, is that they only want losers. And when you see that term gamble responsibly at the end of their ads, well, you think, hang on a second, who are are the, the people you're filtering out 
uh, from betting as part of your business model. And it's the people who, in a sense, are gambling responsibly, the people who know how to win uh, and, and aren't losing all their money. What we've talked about on the show quite a bit, Steve, is the, the social damage caused by gambling addiction and um, the role that these companies play in facilitating that. A lot of your report, the background briefing and so on, was looking at the practices of um, screening out successful punters and, and tweaking the algorithms so that punters couldn't win. But, you know, the flip side to that is, as you say, the ones who can't win, um, who are who are marked as easy targets basically that you know there's there are ways to encourage people to bet more when you know that they're not likely to win with that's right and james poppleton told us that that if you were losing you could bet more and more and more and we know that these kind of betting agencies have what they call vip schemes where they have people who bet large and lose large and they almost duchess them in, in many ways. Uh, and I'm talking broadly here about the sports betting industry where they'll take people to the races or they'll take them to sporting events. They make them feel special. They call them. They, of course, send push notifications to people as well via social media. So they certainly do uh, target people who, who lose. And they also make it hard when those people who do lose eventually have a win to cash in their win because what they do is these companies is uh, not allow them to withdraw their their money straight away uh, so they hope they keep gambling that money so uh, they have all kinds of secret tricks of the trade and they're not transparent about them i mean one of the things about the sport that we love cricket we know what the rules are um, and, and we know how they're they're interpreted but when it comes to sports betting there's a real lack of transparency in the terms and conditions so if you are restricted from betting and you ring up and say hang on what's going on they won't tell you oh it's because you're too successful it's because you're unprofitable to this company there's a real lack of transparency in this industry yeah there's the flip isn't there there's the the people we'd identify as problem gamblers but the way that um, your report characterizes successful gamblers is problem customers i mean that even the nomenclature is, is quite concerning and quite troubling when you, when you consider the way they frame the conversation yeah we we got our, our hands on some documents from inside bet 365 and one that that was written in 2016 and it referred to their problem customer policy now that term problem is used as you point out colo uh in relation to problem gamblers, to people who have an addiction. That's how that term is used most commonly inside the industry or when referring to that industry. But Bet365 has a problem customer policy. Uh, now they say it's, uh, it targets people who are getting an unfair advantage, but they have in their terms and conditions that they can basically restrict anybody or ban anybody that they want or not take bets off anybody that they want. So if that's the case, um, if they were making fraudulent bets, they have policies in place that can deal with those kind of people. James Poppleton said that this problem customer policy was aimed at people who were successful punters, particularly in in-play betting, which is the most lucrative market for the sports betting agencies across the world. So uh, that certainly raised some eyebrows when we got our hands on that document from people who are pushing for gambling reform, that that, that particular company refers to those kind of punters as problem customers customers. Steve, you spoke to me for the documentary about the betting company's relationship with Cricket Australia, the badging, the branding, the boundary line ropes, the, the banners up inside stadiums and all the rest of it. From your broader view of the company, what is their incentive? What are they trying to get out of these relationships with the big sporting bodies? 
Well, it, those relationships are incredibly important to them because the most lucrative part of the market globally is in-play betting. So if you're reminding people who are watching the sport, and of course, Test cricket goes for six hours, so that's a lot of opportunities to bet. If you're constantly reminding people that this is the betting agency you should um, have a bet with, uh, that helps them make money in the most lucrative part of their market. That's what they want. They want people to bet in play. And in cricket, of course, that's the next wicket or what's going on in the next over or whatever. So that's really what they want out of this. Uh, it's not an altruistic, uh, let's you know, prop up uh, a sport that we love. You know, they want people to gamble in the moment in play. And um, certainly people I've spoken to while I was putting together this story had real concerns in particular about how this kind of advertising normalises gambling to children. And we all want children to watch cricket. We all want them to fall in love with the game that we love. Uh, but do we want them to fall in love with the concept of gambling being a normal part of sport? Um, that a lot of people would question that. Tim Costello um, from the Alliance for Gambling Reform, uh, the Reverend Tim Costello, who's has spoken with Cricket Australia about this issue, describes this relationship as a national shame, and he wants Cricket Australia to drop their relationship with Bet365. And I also spoke to a woman called Samantha Thomas, who's one of the foremost academics uh, worldwide in this area. And in 2017, she led a research team that looked into the issue of uh, sport and gambling and its relationship with children. And, and they found that 75% of eight to 16 year olds that they spoke to thought that gambling was a normal part of sport. And they also thought that cashback offers, ret um, refund offers, these kind of offers that you see in the ads are creating a perception that there is no risk attached to gambling. Now, of course, I've also spoken to people who say that there are under 18s who are accessing uh, illegally sports betting and they've got apps and they may be using the ID of their, their parents to do so. But if they're not, if they're waiting till they're 18, of course, then we have the issue. And this is an issue that Stuart Kenny, who's the former CEO of Paddy Power, brought up with me when I spoke to him for the background briefing, was that when you're 18, those frontal lobes of your brain, which, you know, control, uh, you know, rational behavior, they're not fully developed. So once you start gambling at 18, you don't have that ability to put the brakes on excessive behavior. And we see this with alcohol consumption and drug cons consumption. It's the same with gambling. So if you're having uh, gambling normalized to teenagers who are watching sport and then suddenly at the age of 18, they can gamble, well, they're more likely to do it in a risky way. Steve, just picking up on something you, you said off the top uh, about 365 especially, one criticism uh, that I saw on social media of the story was that, well, every gambling agency acts this way, 365's no, no different to anyone else, but as you mentioned before, they were the pioneer of a lot of these practices. That's right, and I think that is a fair point that the betting agencies mimic each other's behaviour. Uh, and so, yes, Bet365 came up with this model. Uh, that's what Brian Chappell told me and others have told me as well. And then the other big betting agencies followed it. And, of course, they bring in their own models as well. So I'm certainly not um, pointing the finger solely at Bet365 here. I think the practices that they use are fairly widespread in the industry. It's, mm. it's just that I spoke to somebody who'd worked inside this company. I was also able to access yeah. documents from inside this company and also screenshots from inside this company of, of people's accounts and the algorithms that we used. 
And certainly as part of a broader investigation I'm doing for the ABC, we'll be looking at all forms of gambling and all companies within that industry. Steve, you mentioned Tim Costello uh, having that criticism of Cricket Australia and having a conversation with them. Kevin Roberts, the boss of CA, uh, responded to that, did an interview on SEN with Jared Waitley and was kind of on the fence about whether their partnership, as they call it, with his company would continue. It's got a couple of years to run. Um, he, he wasn't saying that it would end in two years, but there was kind of that hint um, that it might or that, that that's being considered. Where do you think this conversation has left Cricket Australia in terms of what seems to be a changing public mood about the appropriateness of these kind of relationships? I think they're under pressure about it. Uh, Tim Costello is certainly not going to release the pressure. If you look at that, that academic research done by Samantha Thomas and Deakin University, you can see the problems arising of normalising gambling uh, with children. Kevin Roberts said that in that interview with Gerald Waitley that they declined an opportunity to take up a gambling sponsor as part of the Big Bash. I know in the UK, the British Labor Party, of course, who just got trounced in the, the election, they had a policy um, where they would get rid of all gambling advertising off Premier League football shirts and also uh, the championship shirts as well. So I feel like, not unlike with tobacco advertising previously, um, that there is a push uh, on at the moment to... Uh, at the very least diluted and we certainly saw um, the policy the regulations change around advertising in the last 12 months in Australia you can only advertise um, gambling companies uh, before uh, up until five minutes before the game and five minutes after the game that's before 8 30 at night of course that still means when the big bash is on over summer kids will still be exposed to that advertising but I get a sense that you're going to see more pressure on the broadcast arm of it, but also there'll be more uh, pressure, I think, on the sporting bodies uh, when it comes to sponsorship. And in that interview, Kevin Roberts said, well, if if there is a change and we don't renew this contract, well, you know, it's not going to really change the level of sponsorship or, or, or how the, 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 the cricket is covered. You know, I'm paraphrasing him there. But of course, if that did change, Jeff, that you would see suddenly it off the Cricket Australia website. You wouldn't see it associated with their play of the day. Uh, it would wind back uh, the Bet365 logo uh, to a certain degree. And I think then the other pressure would come on advertising standards and where you would be at that point. Yeah, I think what he was saying was that even if it wasn't on the the boundary hoardings and so on, it would be in the ad breaks on the broadcast, but that doesn't really stack up because if it wasn't effective on the boundary ropes and, and the hoardings, then it wouldn't be there. They wouldn't be paying money to have it there. Um, but what do you think of the position that it's there's kind of a concession that it's not a good product to have associated with the Big Bash. So then how is it a good product to have associated with Test Match Cricket or other international cricket? It's a really good point, Jeff. And he seemed to be saying we have to honour our contract. He seemed to be giving hints that they would be thinking very long and hard about that. And, you know, he's only been in that job for a certain amount of time. Uh, presumably he had a big say in that decision not to adopt uh, a gambling sponsor as part of the Big Bash. Well, um, it'll be a big test of whether he will apply those same standards when the Bet365 contract comes up for a renewal because uh, presumably he wants just as many children watching Test Cricket as he does want watching the Big Bash. 
so yeah, that will be a, a very interesting, and I don't even know when the, the contract is up. He didn't say it uh, in that interview. He did say that you know they had to honour that contract. I'm not sure how much it's worth, and I'm not sure when it's due for renewal. Yeah, there, there's the, the the timing of your story, Steve, and the pressure on uh, the governing body, Cricket Australia, also corresponded with the M. Smith Farago a couple of weeks ago, so the Hurricanes player in the Women's Big Bash League who was uh, pinged for posting the team sheet on Instagram and um, and the risk that that could have given preferential information to, to, to gambling agencies and gamblers and so forth. Just the, the broader efficacy around uh, having that information in the public domain. Uh, how influential do you think that has been in just reminding uh, people that... Uh, despite the, the good work that CA are trying to do in the integrity space or the efforts they've been making over a period of time to make the game as clean as possible, that it runs directly in opposition to this very obvious and, and, and most forthright sponsorship that's all over the ground. I do think that puts them in a, in a difficult position that they're being really tough and rightly so on the players when it comes to um, anything to do with betting on the games. I think there's another element here, and I think internally they must be aware of this, is that there are elite athletes in that sport and many other sports that have relationships with gambling companies who themselves have gambling problems. Um, you have that you have that fatal cocktail of uh, young men and women with money um, getting paid well with a little bit of time on their hands, naturally high risk takers, and often um, are, are gambling and often getting into trouble and losing money. And we've seen that so many times over the years with AFL footballers, with cricketers who've who've had problems with gambling, um, and so I think surely all of these things are going to got to got to have some kind of weight when they're making decisions uh, about what which sponsorship dollars they choose to take. And of course, uh, cricket Australia, cricket is the national game in Australia. You would think that there would be people queuing up to advertise with cricket. So if, if Cricket Australia decides that they want to make that kind of uh, position, if they want to take that kind of position, you would think uh, that there would be other uh, sponsors. Um, and of course, remember, after the ball tampering, there were a lot of sponsors um, decided to uh, withdraw from the field. Um, and they've seemed to have filled those breaches fairly well. So I think that there's always a surplus of people who want to associate their name and their brand with a, a such a, a prominent sport like cricket in Australia. You've been around for a while, Steve. Obviously, you'd remember well when tobacco sponsorship was banned from sport in Australia. Do you think it's realistic to expect that some sort of action will come from the federal government? So in your work around this story, is that something that's come up in conversations or, or is that just completely pie-in-the-sky stuff that the federal government might intervene when it comes to sports gambling ads? I think that's far less likely than than Cricket Australia acting, to be honest, because if you look at the history in Australia, Australia has the the, the highest per capita losses in gambling of any country in the world, about twice of what it is in the US or New Zealand or Ireland. Singapore is second, and they're a long way behind the pack. Um, Australian governments, particularly state governments, have become very reliant on gambling taxes for revenue. In New South Wales, the state that I'm in, uh, last time I looked, about 10% of the revenue they brought in came from gambling taxes. Uh, so I, I think in a sense the governments have become addicted to not only gambling revenue but donations from gambling companies. And if you want to see um, reform in relation to 
um, gambling, well, it's not been coming from governments uh, lately. And the large part of the problem in Australia is poker machines. Uh, and Andrew Wilkie, the Tasmanian Independent MP, had a deal with the Gillard government uh, in relation to reducing the harm from poker machines. Uh, and once um, the Labor government, the then Labor government, got a bit of pressure from the clubs industry, they uh, reneged on that deal. So in Australia, um, the lobby group, the lobbying um, of the lobbying power of gambling companies is much stronger than it is in, say, a country like the UK. About 18 months ago in the UK, they, they brought in uh, maximum, I think it was one or two pound bets on poker machines. And it was highly uncontroversial. Both the Conservative Party and the Labor Party supported it. Uh, and it kind of went through quite easily. So I think change in Australia politically is much tougher when it comes to the gambling industry. Steve Kinane, thanks so much for your important work. Uh, the story you published last week, which you can access across the ABC platforms, background briefing, uh, the 7.30 report, and there was also a written piece on the website as well. And thanks for coming and sharing some of those insights with us on The Final Word. Thanks, guys. Great to chat. G'day, guys. This is Jimmy Neesham. You're listening to The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lee. We're really happy to uh, talk again of our friends at Wisden Cricket Monthly, Jeff. We're back in partnership with Wisden and the Night Watchman. So last week we talked about the Night Watchman, which is the Wisden quarterly journal, some of the best cricket writing in the world, thenightwatchman.net. At the moment there's a 20% offer there. Put in TFW20 into the offer code and grab yourself a copy of the five-year special edition. Some wonderful writing in there. We spoke about that a lot then, but yes, a reminder that if you want a sort of a hard copy version of this wonderful uh, quarterly book, um, jump on there, thenightwatchman.net. It's not the sort of information or not the sort of publication rather that, that you get um, the uh, you, you get online that doesn't come from behind the paywall. You either buy a subscription digitally, uh, you get the book each quarter. Either way, it's a brilliant read. Uh, it's a publication that you and I both contribute to uh, routinely. So jump on thenightwatchman.net and pump in TFW. 20 to grab yourself 20% off. And, and Jeff, today we'll just pivot ever so slightly to talk about the monthly version of the famous Wisden brand, which is Wisden Cricket Monthly, a magazine which comes out, as you'd expect, once a month. It's really funny how that happens. Um, generally on a calendar <laughs> basis, they tend to use the, is it the Gregorian or, or, the, or the, the Julian? I can never remember. The Brendan Julian calendar. That's something that I would subscribe to. Um, get that. Just 12 shots of BJ in different... Um, <laughs> Different states of undress. <laughs> Just d- different poses. Oh, he's on a jet ski for February. I like that. <laughs> um, so, yes, you can grab a Wisdom Cricket Monthly at a fat discount. It's not quite half price, but it's nearly half price. If you're in the UK, it's 11 quid down to six, basically. And, you know, you can work that out. It's roughly double in Australian terms. Um, it's, it's, it's close enough. So there's a massive saving uh, if you pick up the Wisdom Cricket Monthly subscription. And they do a whole bunch of different stuff each month. Obviously, they do the sort of interviews and profiles, but they do quite a lot of um, dives into cricket that isn't necessarily being covered elsewhere. Um, mm. Down to the lower levels, there's a, a strong focus on women's cricket as well as men's. And a, I guess a look at the, the quirkier and, and sort of sillier side of the game as well as the serious stuff. 
Yeah, so brilliant staff writers led by uh, Joe Harmon and, and Phil Walker, who've been both at the magazine for a long time. They've they've uh, they they know how to put a wonderful publication together each month, uh, and their team of staff. But then uh, the the columnists you have coming through put myself to one side. I, I write for them uh, monthly. But Andrew Miller, who's been I guess the, a long term feature of the, the press box in England, a, a former editor of the the Cricketer magazine as well, the, the senior editor at Crick Info, he writes for them monthly. Uh, this month there's the the cricketing life column with Stuart McGill there's an interview with Monty Monty Panesar but I mean across the board what you get in Wisdom Cricket Monthly each month is some of the the best most high quality most considered cricket writing uh, on the planet which I have loved being a subscriber to this magazine I've enjoyed writing for it but I I enjoy reading it far more again this month there's the uh, Wisdom Cricket Monthly teams of the year process that we've all gone through Jeff I assume you were part of that as well it's it's never easy picking these teams of the year, but um, we go into some depth in the magazine about who's made it and why they've made it and so on. Um, I'm not sure who's on the cover yet, but I've got a feeling that there's been some pretty standout performances in, in November and December, which might get a Guernsey uh, and they'll be in the magazine, which is hitting shelves on December the 27th. Just to reiterate your point, Jeff, uh, the subscription is ridiculously cheap through the final word you can get six editions of the magazine digitally so on your ipad tablet phone however you like to read your magazines for five pounds 99 so that's about 10 bucks in australian dollars six editions for 10 bucks i mean you just do the maths on that a couple of cups of coffee maybe two cups of coffee if you're in perth three cups of coffee if you're anywhere but perth uh, in australian uh, economics uh, means you can get access to six copies of wisdom cricket monthly to subscribe you go to pktmags.com forward slash WCM finals. So Pocket Mags is the website, pktmags.com forward slash WCM final. Uh, and once you're there, you can unlock your discount, which will give you six editions of the mag for £5.99. It's outstanding value. There's a reason why it's the best cricket magazine in the world. There's a reason why so many people subscribe to it. Uh, and you can become part of the, the Wisdom Cricket Monthly family by jumping on that website now, pktmags.com forward slash Wisdom Cricket Monthly Finals. So WCM final. And you're good to go. And you'll be supporting a great publication, supporting independent writing and supporting the final word all at once. What a trio of aims. So you've said it all, Adam, including that um, URL many, many times. So if that's not inscribed <laughs> on your brain, it's your fault for not paying attention, dear listeners. Uh, the WBBL finals, Adam, it all took place on one weekend, two semis on the Saturday, the final on the Sunday. I, I quite liked that format, the, the slight carnival feel. And the Brisbane Heat, we, we gave them the boot in the first couple of seasons because they had a good team on paper and didn't deliver. They came through in season four and won for the first time. Um, and then they were really just dominant in season five to go back to back. It, it didn't look like any other result from the time that they played their semi. It, it looked like they were just going to cruise all the way. Yeah, I'm thrilled for them. Uh, I think that they were under a lot of pressure after the first few seasons. I think they made the finals in season two, but perennial underachievers, and they've done it with a core of players who've been there since the start, really, when you consider Mooney and Jonathan and Alyssa Kimmins and Sammy J. Johnson and her um, development over the last couple of years. Um, they And they were all integral at, in different points uh, through uh, that finals uh, stage, um, another half century for, for Beth uh, in the final, makes her player of the match in consecutive finals. Um, Jess Jonathan with the blade. Sammy Joe Johnson made 27 off 11 balls. 
Um, they did well to get rid of uh, Sophie Devine early in the final, which was crucial. The Adelaide Strikers superstar who made over 700 runs uh, in the tournament and propelled them from the semi-final into the final. So it, it really was a, a wonderful way to, to put a full stop on what's been an excellent campaign. I, I thought so much of it came down to Sophie Devine. 769 runs she made in the tournament, made another half century in the mm. semi-final. She also got Meg Lanning out, who was playing for the Perth Scorchers, and that really sealed the fate of that game. So Perth batted first, Devine gets Lanning out, the rest fall away from there. They only made 120-odd. Um, she chased it down, you know, half of it by herself and looked in so Her much own, control. Yeah. And and so what I thought was key for for the final was that Brisbane really targeted Sophie Devine. They, they went after her. They they had a deep third in position to dismiss her early, got her caught on the boundary. She wasn't able to contribute with the bat. And then when she was bowling with the ball, she was the one that Sammy Joe Johnson went after. So mm-hmm. they had Maddie Green, who'd played well in the semi, opening the batting. She was out cheaply in the final. And so Brisbane made the decision. Sammy Joe had been batting down the order this year, but they sent her in as a pitch hitter at first drop. And... She absolutely delivered on the brief, hit four sixes in the over from Sophie Devine and then was eventually out to Devine after that. But that had just done so much to, to, to power charge the chase. And from that point, you know, Brisbane weren't going to do anything but win. Yeah, and it was no easy route to the final either, I should add. Remember, they had to do well on the final weekend to get the home fixtures and then they had to overcome the Renegades who were in pretty good touch with the bat uh, in the back half of the tournament. They had 163 in the semi batting first, the Melbourne side. And look, uh, that's not a massive T20 total uh, by any means, but takes a fair bit of chasing um, going at eight and over. And oh, on that occasion, you say it was Matty Green who did the bulk of the work. Um, Grace Harris... Um, went nuts. They ended up doing it with two overs to spare after she cleared the ropes on multiple occasions. So, yeah, they showed that depth, didn't they? That when they didn't necessarily have Mooney uh, in that uh, second, in that first fixture, sorry, the the semi final. But um, yeah, it was Jonathan and it was Grace Harris and it was Maddie Green. The particularly impressive thing for me this year is the way that Jonathan has flourished with the bat. She's always been a useful contributor, but she's often been not quite a runner ball contributor through the middle or, or the, the yep. lower middle. You know, she might come in and, and make you 35 off 38 or something like that. She's switched that around this year. So she started going at much better than a runner ball. Um, she's found ways to clear the rope. She's not a, a big player or a super strong player in, in the way that someone like Grace Harris, who's taller and more muscular, can sort of have that um, strength to clear the rope, you know, just with the swing of the bat. Jonathan has to time it. But she's been able to do that. Um, she's she's opened up her game to find more boundary shots as well along the ground. And so she's just been much more of a threat in coming in higher up the order and, you know, playing as a real top order hitter as well as doing her usual, you know, four overs of very parsimonious left arm spin. Yeah, that, that's right. I think that, if anything, her, her batting had dropped away to such a point where, and this is going to sound ridiculous given her record as an international bowler, but you could start developing the case why she should be out of the national side. You've got Sophie Molyneux, who's an exceptional left arm spinner, but also can justifiably bat in the top four, certainly does it in the WBBI. I know Molyneux um, wasn't playing in the back half of the season, but looking at over the last couple of years, you, you could... You could sort of see where Jonathan might start missing out. She didn't play 
uh, in the World T20 in, in the Caribbean in 2018 on the back of a, a knee injury which she was returning from. But yeah, I agree. The fact that she's been able to reinforce that she's a legitimate all-rounder. Remember, she's got the best straight drive in women's cricket. I mean, she's a fine player, but it's just that um, that consistency of scores has come together uh, and coupling that with her, as you say, bowling, which is ever so frugal. Yeah, they're deserved champions uh, and, I'm, and I'm really happy for them. I would have loved to have seen uh, the Renegades find a way to, to get to the final just because they're a, they're a fascinating side to watch and I'm glad the Strikers uh, got to the, got to the final too uh, given we've been really standing them since season one but uh, yeah the end of a, a most successful season by I haven't gone through all of the numbers myself yet but I will I'm sure uh, before the year is out um, and we'll do this uh, again when we go through the, the team of the five years for the WBBL which I should signpost we're going to do in our end of year final word extravaganza which we do each year the, the, the WBBL team of the five years will be part of that but when it comes to attendances and, and TV audience and um, participation for girls and women now playing cricket in Australia um, it, it's all looking up and, and it's in large part due to this wonderful tournament. My two favourite bits of the finals weekend both involved leg spinners on the losing side but when the Renegades were playing um, and Jess Duffin got out late in their innings and you just thought oh you know they've, they've let a chance slip here they were they were sort of 130 odd at the time and you're thinking they, they, they're not going to really push on. Georgia Wareham came out and just absolutely cleaned up. 22 runs off eight balls. Um, everything had to go. Um, and, and she did that job beautifully. And then Amanda Wellington, one of our favourites in the final, when Adelaide were in trouble with Sophie Devine out cheaply. And, and uh, Amanda Wellington came in and smashed 55 her first half century in the format off about 33 balls. Went absolutely nuts. And it was a, a real flourishing moment for her. She hasn't had the easiest year with the ball. It, it hasn't all gone her way. She hasn't been having a super easy Australia A series either. She's in that team playing against India at the moment. But, you know, to see her have that little moment with the bat in the final was was all worthwhile as well. And and then Beth Mooney to surge past 700 runs for the season too. Didn't quite get past Perry's 774, but might have done if they had more to chase. Yeah, so in that Australia A series you just mentioned before, Jeff, that's a great thing that we've now seen them bob up more consistently. So I think there was a time where we would see the, the, the shooting stars, as they're called, the, the, the youth squad play, but sort of formalising Australia A as a team that goes away and plays as the level below, I think that's a, a real positive. And um, the fact that we're getting to see these players who appear in the WBBL, appear in the WNCL, but may not necessarily be in the national side right now, play against a team like India A who are equally strong uh, the next level down. Um, it, it's a, it's just another step in that sort of direction of professionalism. Not that it's not professional already, but a, a true kind of round-the-year professionalism where you can continue to have opportunities to play in addition to domestic cricket. So Australia have, 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 uh, have done well there. They've, they've won 2-1 in the limited overs games. They uh, were able to um, make over 300 a couple of times. Georgia Redmayne, Jeff, uh, made a century off... Uh, well, 113 off 128 balls. Aaron Burns, another one of our favourites, 107 from 59 balls. So Burns is probably the best example of that. Someone who is just kind of on the cusp of playing consistent international cricket now gets another opportunity to showcase her talents. Well, what I loved there was the development. So we saw Georgia Redmayne go to the Hobart Hurricanes because she couldn't get yep. opportunities in New South Wales, do really well there for a couple of seasons, uh, moved over to play for the Scorchers now, played well in the back end of the season there and, and has managed to get into this team. So she was keeping wicket and opening in this 50-over game and she played that perfect sort of anchor 100 
innings, you know, where they needed someone to bat through and to, to have that solidity through the middle. And then Burns was able to come in at the end and tee off and did it beautifully. And then they both made runs in the third fixture as well. So India won the first game with a couple of hundreds to Veda Krishnamurti, who has been around for a long time, played for India in their World Cup final in 2017 and has played for the Hurricanes as well. And then Shafali Verma, who is horrifying in that she's a professional cricketer who was born in 2004. Uh, she's 15 <laughs> years of age. She smashed 124 in quick time as well. So they won the first game. Australia came back and uh, won the, the next two to take that series 2-1. But, yeah. It, it, and, good new, and good news there is to jump in and say that Talia McGrath is a name that's fallen off the, the radar a little bit. She makes 97. Annabelle Sutherland makes 52 there and gets wickets later in the series. So Annabelle Sutherland, who we've been, again, talking up for a WBBL and performances Victoria, um, here she's doing it with ball and bat, much like, I guess, her, the opportunities her brother got to excel with ball and bat when he's been playing in these various squads. Uh, he, his younger sister Annabelle's now doing it too. And Molly Strano um, having a pretty significant part to play in that deciding victory as well. She got through her 10 overs which not many have been doing because they've had eight different bowlers in the squad so they've been chopping and changing a lot but um (laughs) but but turned to the bowlers who were in form in Sutherland and Strano who bowled their 10 overs um to hold India to 176 didn't bowl them out but just didn't let them score so yeah it's been been really encouraging to see this series and see some of these players uh, get a run We've always said about Molly Strano that she does her best work when the when the cameras are on. Mm. We, we saw in the WBBL she had a, a disproportionate skew towards taking big bags when she was playing in, in televised games. Of course, has played a handful of fixtures in the T20 uh, national side, and yeah, good that she was able to get through uh, frugal overs there to, to press her claim for a, a start in the 50 over team as well. Because we we talk about the two left arm spinners in Jonathan uh, and Molyneux, and of course, there's Amanda Wellington who, for reasons that Befuddle me is on the outer as the right arm wrist spinner, but there isn't really an obvious right arm off spinner. So Strano uh, might be able to over time. Erin Osborne, of course, did the role, but she's now retired. But yeah, with with the retirement of Kristen Beams as well, there, there might be another opportunity here for, for Strano to to press for higher honours uh, in the fifty over format when the TV cameras are on. With the lights on, she gets dangerous. Here we are now, <laughs> entertain us. End of the show, I reckon. Yeah, we're getting there, aren't we? We were going to have a new segment, but we're going to um, park it for next week, Jeff. Where you're going to, um, you're going to, you're, you're going to be the stat man. You're the stat man. I'm the stat man. Be up, 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 up. Because we've gone on a bit, we probably should um, keep that for next week. But um, yes, the stat man will be coming to the final word for out in Christmas edition. We've got a, a big interview lined up for that. Cannot wait to get that uh, coming through. If we get our act together. Um, you'll have it ready to listen to on Christmas Eve when you're driving out to see your family or your friends or, or, or driving down to Melbourne for the cricket. Perhaps a lot of people do that as a bit of an annual pilgrimage around Christmas Day, ready for the Boxing Day test from interstate. So we'll have a nice long form interview ready for you to tuck into at Christmas and then we'll be back for another sort of issues-based show, I suppose, um, which will take place after the Melbourne test when we saddle up for 2020. Or you can listen to our show on Christmas Day when you're crying. Uh, say four in the afternoon when everyone's had 14 sherries and some uncomfortable truths have been shared around the table and you've had to like go and sit in the back lane outside your house where you used to go when you were a kid and you feel like you haven't moved on from those times. You feel like nothing's changed and and uh, still no one understands you and still the world is a, a cruel and uncaring place. Well, then you can plug your headphones in and you can listen to the final word because we love you and we understand. 
We absolutely do. So a few thank yous as always to to DC and to Jay Mueller and the Bad Producer Production family that we're so proud to be part of. Thanks for getting this show on the road each week. Thanks for your patience with us and uh, and, and making sure that um, we sound a lot better in the final product than we do when we're recording. Futuretalent.com.au, it, it's the perfect time. Uh, we said off the top of the show, um, it, it, they're a great little operation. They're doing a wonderful thing. The cards are outstanding. Jump on futuretalent.com.au and, and, and consider um, going with them for your presentation night, a wonderful alternative to trophies. Uh, and to the Night Watchman and Wisdom Cricket Monthly, we're thrilled to be uh, back in union with them for the foreseeable future. The Night Watchman is a great publication that you can get ahead of Christmas. If you don't quite get the, the book in time, they'll, they'll print you a certificate, which you can give as a gift, which I think is a nice touch. The five-year special is out right now. And Wisdom Cricket Monthly, you can read me writing about um, some old men who sit at the MCG and watch Victoria play, and they've been doing so since 1985. That's who I wrote about this, this month. I, I thought it was time they had this story told, so you can get hold of that magazine. Magazine and, and receive a, a very healthy discount by doing so. Just £5.99 to get the next six editions of Wisdom Cricket Monthly. Jeff, I think that's about really it. Really weird that um, you've been writing about your own future. That's just, <laughs> just, just, just able to. It's like a Biff Tannen yeah. sort of uh, back to the future. I'm going to see it in the future. I'm going back to give him the Grace Balls Almanac. <laughs> except that you, I'm sitting in the Southern Stand. Except you're not doing it to make money. You just really want to know how many wickets Josh Hazelwood's going to take in 2024. <laughs> <laughs> <You know? You> just... <laughs> that should be something we do in the final show of the year, by the way. We should do some 10-year forecasts. I mean, they're always reliable when the Treasury do them. So maybe we, the Commonwealth Treasury and the final word, we'll do our 10-year projections uh, on, that, on that final episode and see how we go. If you're one of the 10 people in the world who know what my EFO stands for, so yeah, <laughs> Man, I, it's it's not it's it's true to say that when I was doing a few DJing gigs a few years ago, I was known my stage name was DJ Maifo, <laughs> and I'm not even and I'm not, and, I, and and yeah, and to be honest, you couldn't fucking make that up. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. This has been the final word. Uh, we will see you the next time we record a show. It'll happen. <laughs> Trust us. <laughs> see you. I had to go about it.